following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John chapter 4 and the dialogue of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well is a pretty fascinating conversation. It goes way beyond what one particular woman needed in her life, although that was the initial thing dealt with, and indeed the change of her life is a, a dominant theme of the passage. But we saw last time how it bordered into the whole subject of worship and the important discussion of worship in spirit and truth. And now it bridges into another big subject, and that is evangelism. And I think that's God's timing that that comes on a Sunday when we're thinking about a new church evangelizing new people. I'm going to read in John 4, reminding you that the dialogue last time ended with Jesus openly acknowledging to this Samaritan woman in verse 26 that he was the Christ, the Messiah. That's the first actual acknowledgement by Jesus of that in this gospel. And we pick up then with the return of his disciples and what is ensuing at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then the harvest comes? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know 
that this is indeed the Savior of the world. May God apply his word to his church right now, today. About 30 years ago or more, a principle of, basically a principle of human sociology began to be talked about a lot in what we call the church growth movement or those people who promote the growth of local churches. And they gave this principle a fancy name, the homogeneous unit principle. You probably have no idea what that was. I'll tell you, it was a fancy name for actually a very simple idea. The homogeneous unit principle says that because Westminster Church is basically a church of middle class, primarily Caucasian people living in suburban or semi-rural settings, not an urban church, that as we grow, we should expect basically the same type of people like us to be the ones we would plan to attract to our church. In other words, we shouldn't expect, let's say, large numbers of African Americans or Latinos or farm workers or urban people to come to our church because that's not what we are. That fancy named principle basically says this, like attracts like. Expect to reach the people who are most like you. Well, there's a certain amount of common sense to that, I'm sure, and I think in the realm of social science, there is something to be heard from a principle like that. But in another realm, that principle is quite contrary to the kingdom of God the way Jesus Christ defined it. For he talked about his kingdom as a great net led into the sea that brings with it all kinds of fish, people of every race and class and situation in life into the family of God. And I thank God that there's evidence of that even in our midst in this room today. Imagine if we had sent those church growth experts who believed in the homogeneous unit principle out to do an advanced field survey of the the place called Sychar in Samaria. And we expected from them a, a, you know, sort of a field report Uh, How good would the prospects be of Jesus going there and finding souls who would come to trust him as Lord and, and find new life in him? Well, I think those folks would come back with their survey and they'd probably say, here's my imaginative version of what they might say. Samaria undoubtedly needs the Savior's message of repentance and rebirth and spiritual life given by the Spirit of God. However, we see that there are walls of ancient animosity and present religious and ethnic misunderstanding that are so severely problematic that we are quite sure no measurable success for Christian evangelism will result in Samaria. That's what the homogeneous unit principle would announce. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ is the foremost expert on how evangelism works, and he defied that principle in our text today. John 4 tells of him plowing up human soil, planting seeds of truth, and seeing very rapidly an amazing harvest of souls, all in a place clearly and absolutely outside the bounds of his own kind of people. They absolutely were not his kind of people. 
They were as different from him, and there were hostilities between his people and these people that would have made evangelism normally not to be expected. But in Samaria, the kingdom of Christ, with its king present, burst through human boundaries of class and ethnicity and religion and every other kind of dividing thing, and boldly changed foreign-looking lives. My leading question is whether we are ready to anticipate the strategy of Jesus for soul evangelism of that kind in our own midst and in our own communities today. John 4, 26 contains no accident in the fact that the very first announcement by Jesus, the confirmation by Jesus that I am that Messiah Christ you are talking about is given. Who is it given to? At the Jerusalem temple, to the Pharisees and and the scholars? Was it even given to Galilee, to his own neighbors? It was given to a woman a looked-down-upon, sorry ladies, female in those days, a woman who to Jewish eyes was a Gentile, and then to make it even worse, a woman with the most messed-up personal life you could possibly think about. That was not an accident that the first announcement of Jesus, I am that Christ who you've just mentioned, was to this person. He invented cross-cultural evangelism in that moment. As he proves in this passage that he was what he comes to be called by verse 42 of this same passage, the Savior of the world, of all kinds of people. And as we consider John 4 today and the conversions that happen here in Samaria, I'm listening to this passage tell about surprising things that God does as He harvests souls. It's a surprise who experiences new birth and how they come. And it seems to me that we're being taught a big lesson to actually expect the unexpected in this realm. I don't know about you, but I've often found examples in my past decades of service as a pastor when someone comes to Christ either in my immediate ministry realm or or perhaps known to me through media or whatever, a national figure, and I think I never would have figured that person to be a Christian disciple. Never. That is just a remarkable conversion. And then there's somebody that I thought, why, my goodness, here's the most likely candidate, and we can certainly think that this person from a Christian environment and so on and so on is definitely going to come to the Lord and serve Him, and we never see it happen. Expect the unexpected of a God whose harvest is often a surprising enterprise. I believe, I just said these words in a conversation after Sunday school to someone that we're going to come to the final day before the throne of God as his saints are gathered and we're going to look around and say, is he there? Is she there? And maybe we're going to say, where's blank? We're going to be surprised at who God brings to himself. First of all today, look upon verses 27 to 30 as an introductory point here. 
that tells us of God's soul harvest as he gathers in surprising people. It tells us of the return of the 12 disciples. They've been out of the narrative for everything up until now. And we were told earlier on that they went looking for food. They'd had an exhausting journey. Jesus stayed at the well. They, you know, there were no Turkey Hills. There were no McDonald's. I don't know how you found food in a place like that. But they came back, and they have some food now, and they know Jesus is expecting that, and they're, they're bearing it, you know, ready to serve him and share with him their food. So with lunch in hand, they come, and they're a little surprised at who he's talking to. And you notice they don't comment, even though their minds are saying, is he talking to a woman from this strange place in Samaria? They've, they've already learned that Jesus doesn't obey many of the social conventions of their day, so they don't say anything, but they're thinking it. And then it tells us that the woman departed, and there's a neat little note in the text. She left her water jar. Why in the world does John tell us that? Let me remind you, this woman came at the noontime in the heat of the day when women don't typically go after water because she probably was isolated socially from others in her town who gathered water in the cool morning or the cool evening. She wanted and needed water. And now she goes out from there without her water jar. What does that say? It says to you that she's obeying a new agenda. Her life is controlled now by a new search and something entirely different going on inside her. One commentator put it this way, she didn't need a clay water pot anymore because she was in touch with the well of living water. She forgot about it, and she rushed in her excitement to tell people about this strange individual she had confronted. She cried out to her neighbors, come and see. Could a man who told me all I ever did be anyone other than the Christ? You see, this prophet, my life was transparent before him. He just dipped into my life and said, well, you've done this, and you've done this, and I see this, and everything he said was absolutely true. Could someone know that unless he was from the great God from whom no secrets are kept? Come and see, she said. Come, listen to him for yourself. Could he be the Christ? I think it's significant that she asked a question rather than make a pronouncement. She didn't go out and say, I have concluded this is the Christ and you'd better believe it. She said, come and see. Come and find out for yourself. You know, the science attached to giving birth for mothers hasn't changed a whole lot in thousands of years. We've got better technology to attend them today, but I know that one thing that hasn't changed in that great moment of giving birth is the baby's first cry, Right? As the midwife or the doctor today holds the child up, what do you want to hear? A wail. And that wail is not a sign of sadness. It's a sign of life and rejoicing at life. Well, this woman's cry as she runs down the street is a baby's cry of new life. Here's a baby Christian crying out, 
about what the Holy Spirit has done. And it's not a rehearsed sermon. It's not an evangelistic speech. Nobody had ever trained her. Nobody put her through an evangelism course and said, here's how to do it. She just went out in the overflow of her joy and said, isn't this what I think it is? The cry of new life as she invited others. God's soul harvest gathering a most surprising person as its first one there in Samaria. But secondly now, the main part of our time will be spent in verses 31 through 38. In the dialogue of Jesus and the disciples, you see, the woman took off and there was time for Jesus and his men to have a little talk, and it was mostly Jesus talking while the other Samaritans were gathering to come back. And so she's out of sight for a moment as in this section we find Jesus calling his disciples, all disciples, then and now, to become harvesters. Now the disciples couldn't understand why Jesus didn't seem to be ready to grab the lunch and dig in. Uh, They offered him food and he didn't seem to be picking up on it and uh, He says this enigmatic thing, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And, of course, they took everything literally, and he didn't mean it literally. Oh, did somebody get him food while we weren't here? No, that wasn't it at all. And, you know, they didn't understand most of what he said in this little dialogue until later on, I think, but they remembered it. As he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And that meant doing the will of his Father. To do the will of God was meat and drink to the Son of God. And Jesus was saying, the most satisfying thing that could have possibly happened to me today is not enjoying, I'm glad you brought lunch, but it's not enjoying the lunch that you've brought. That'll last a couple hours. You know, we eat a meal, we're hungry again. If you're a 14-year-old growing boy, you know, you have lunch, and in half an hour you're saying, Mom, is there any food in the house? You know, food doesn't last very long. Jesus said, I've been doing something that has to do with eternal things. Something has happened here with a soul that I'm satisfied with and happy about because it's going to have an effect in eternity. You know, if you ask many people, well, what would make you most satisfied? What would be satisfying to you in the ultimate best way? You'd get a lot of different answers. I don't know if you could compile them. People, some would say, well, if I had an unlimited amount of money to spend. Or uh, if I could retire at 40 and do what I want the rest of my life and have a, you know, a cabin at the, or a house at the shore and a boat and, and just enjoy myself and conduct myself according to my pleasures the rest of my days. In other words, I'd be most satisfied whatever situation gave me the most freedom to do what I want to do without any restrictions. Well, the fact of the matter is, even worldly people aren't most satisfied in that situation, although they think they would be. And Christians are not most satisfied in that situation because a Christian is a person who has said to Christ, you are my Lord. That means God is the commander of your life. And therefore, doing God's agenda and being in tune with that agenda in some way is what is going to give you satisfaction. Just as Jesus found satisfaction in doing the will of God, taking the message of hope and redemption and mercy to a needy person, so 
do Christians find satisfaction in making the gospel known, in becoming what we might call harvesters, fellow harvesters with God and with Christ? Jesus was saying in so many words, I can skip lunch any day if it allows me to interact with a soul with eternal consequences. So the first thing we're told here is that disciples should seek and find satisfaction in becoming harvesters and participants in the work of God, which is a work of evangelism to souls. Secondly, in the sub-point here under this main point, there's an urgency about this work. You not only need to be a harvester, you need to know how important it is to get at it. I don't address that many farmers. I have friends in other parts of the country who hear where I live, and they say, oh, your congregation's all farmers, right? I said, no, I think I count exactly one farm, one, owned by members of our congregation that I know of. So I don't think I address a lot of people who are absolutely farm experts or agricultural experts, but all of us can imagine that if you're farming, there's a season, there's a moment, you know, you've got to get the seed in the ground, and if the spring's too wet and you can't plow in time, then the harvest is going to be held off, and there are some cases in which you might get two crops in a, a year, and you wouldn't have time for two if you delay the first one too long, and all these things. Timing's important. And then when the grain is ripe and the heads of the wheat are ready, you better get your combine out and harvest. Don't wait till it's too late. The crop could actually rot or be destroyed in the field. So Jesus says, well, maybe you know a little bit about harvesting and you think, well, you plant and then you wait four months and then you harvest. He said, no, wait a minute. It's already harvest time. It's already time for harvesters in the field of God to get going and to know that there's an urgent work for them to do. And he uses this this phrase here, the fields are ripe or the fields are white to harvest. Mature Christians have heard that phrase all their lives. Oh, yeah, that's a missions conference. Isn't there a way in which we just kind of slough that off? Oh, yeah, missions conference, fields are white to harvest. They're sure to talk about that at missions time. Well, have you ever really thought about that phrase? We think it means it's, it's an expression, and I'm told that at least an experienced farmer can look at a field of wheat, and apparently some kinds of grain, the, the, the grain actually is lighter in color when it's ready to be harvested. And, and even its color, the color of the field, will tell experienced eyes that it's ready. But tragically, we hear that. The fields are white. Oh, yeah, well, sure. I've heard that since I was five years old. And we're dulled to the idea that there's an urgency about the gospel. We think, well, I'm going to live a long time. I'm planning to live 20, 25 more years or 50 more years or whatever, depending on your age. And so most of the people I know will certainly live 50 more years. There's no urgency. Just wait till you get old. (laughs) Just wait till you get old and the obituaries are for folks your age and you start to understand the urgency question a lot differently. Ephesians 2, 12 has Paul saying this about many people in this world, including people you know. The apostle wrote, he spoke about those who were, quote, without Christ 
being aliens from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in this world. That's like a sentence of doom, isn't it? Without Christ, without the benefits of God's covenant, without God. And if you're without God in this world, believe me, you're without God in the world to come. I have to ask you the question, are human souls who lack a possession of transforming faith in Jesus Christ as Lord lost, L-O-S-T, or are they not? Now, quite possibly some of you here don't think they are lost. But if you think they are, which is clearly the message of the Bible, then I'm not talking to you about faceless numbers of population. I'm talking to you possibly about your spouse or your mother or your adult son or your cousin or your neighbor or your best friend. I'm talking about people with faces And I'm asking if you see any urgency at all about the work of harvest, which for us is evangelistic prayer, first and foremost, praying specifically that God would do His work with the souls of people. And then as we're available to do it and God opens the door, some word of personal witness. Is it nothing to you that there are people streaming by you every single day of the week? who are without God in this world? And do you just assume that if God is going to do something, it's going to happen whether you're involved in it or not? We need to ask the question to other people gently, sensitively, with caring and concern. Is it possible that this Jesus Christ whom I worship is, after all, the one who makes a difference for time and eternity? Could I talk to you about that? In 2 Corinthians 6, we hear the words, now is the acceptable time. Now, right now, is the day of salvation. And there's somebody in your life, I guarantee you, somebody in your life, I don't know who, for whom the present day is a very important day because they don't have a lot more days to encounter Christ. So this is a satisfying work because it's God's work. It's an urgent work. And then another sub-point in this second issue here is this, and it's wonderfully reassuring. You folks from Proclamation Church, it's wonderfully reassuring. We do not harvest alone. Jesus speaks about the cooperative venture that harvesting and planting is involved in. He says, you, you will harvest things for which you did not labor. There are all kinds of interconnections between people who plant the seed, tend it, and finally bring in the harvest. It's a cooperative work. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. A few years ago in this congregation, I got a call. I think it was about midweek that a woman, a young woman, graduate student, called. I knew she'd been here at our church a little while. Didn't really know a lot about her, but she called and said, Pastor, I thought I should tell you this. I gave my heart to Christ in the pew at the end of Sunday's sermon. Oh, you want to build your pastor up? 
Try that one on me some week, okay? And of course, my own vanity soared. I wondered, what brilliant thing did I say that caused this woman to put her trust in Christ? I certainly didn't say that, or I don't even know if I I thought it consciously, but it was lurking there, just a layer below the conscious. So I I said, well, come in. Let's talk about it. Let's see how I might help you or follow up with you. And and she came in and told me her story. I'd never really heard much about it. And she told me, uh, reeled off a whole series of Christian influences, parents, friends. She'd been to Sunday school. She'd been evangelized before. And all kinds of things had happened. She'd been in college study groups. And what I came to see pretty quickly in talking with this woman was evangelism had been coming at her from every direction. I'm told the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship a number of years ago started asking students who first trusted in Christ the question, can you think of anybody who's been praying for this to happen? And almost every time a student could say, well, sure, my grandmother, my mother, my best friend. You see the cooperative work? And I realized that in the case of that young woman, she said, Pastor, I trusted Christ in the pew after your sermon. I didn't say anything very brilliant. I was just a dumb harvester standing there with a basket when a piece of ripe fruit fell off the tree of unbelief into the basket. But what a privilege it is to even be able to hold the basket if that's the place God gives you. You see, it's a cooperative venture. God, the Holy Spirit, begins. He's the planter. He puts the seed of new life in, and he gives life, or there's no harvest. And then other people pray and and say a word of witness or encourage, and maybe they don't see the fruit. They're not harvesters in the direct sense. They're they're more like planters and tillers of the soil and, and weeders, perhaps. But somebody gets to be there at the harvest. And if you're involved in this thing long enough, you do get to see the harvest. And you can say the result belongs to the Lord. Let me assure you, folks, I'm not sure where Troy DeBruin is sitting today. He's out here someplace. But uh, I assure Troy, the pastor of Proclamation and other members of that church, God sees your harvest. He's put his seed in the hearts of people who are going to be part of that church. And you're going to do something that's going to help them along the way. And you're going to realize what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 when he looked and said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Don't ever forget that. Cooperative labor, but it's God's labor from beginning to end. There's no place for a rivalry or a jealousy or an overbearing pride among harvesters in God's field. Well, then we move to the closing point of this text, verses 39 to 42. As the Samaritan townspeople now come back, the scene of Jesus talking alone with his disciples ends there. And verse 39, many Samaritans from the town came and believed in him, first of all, because of the woman's testimony. Here's the surprising harvest that proves Jesus is the Savior of the world. I don't know what those people thought at first. I I have a feeling. My supposition is that they thought they were coming to meet some kind of a fortune teller because the woman had said, come see a man who told me everything about myself. Oh, that's amazing. 
You must be one of those guys at the carnival, you know, who can kind of tell you how old you are or something like that. We, we did that. I remember doing that at a carnival once. And, and my wife has always looked younger than she really is. She's actually 102, but, uh, you know, <laughs> she's not here today, so I could, I could get away with this. She told me she was going to listen to the live streaming, though, so I'm probably in big trouble right now. But Carol has always looked young, and I thought, I can get this carnival guy. How old is my wife? He got her right on the year. I couldn't believe it. Well, maybe that's what they thought they were coming to see, some guy that had a trick by which he could tell people about their lives. But it seems immediately many of these people were affected by a new birth, not just based on some kind of a trick or something spectacular, but because this man evidently was the authentic Christ of God. The other day I was talking to a young man who told me his testimony. And he told of growing up in a home where there was little love for him from his parents. His father was extremely distant. His mother was often angry. When he was in middle school, he said his parents were affected and and quite suddenly came to Christ. And suddenly Christianity was the dominant motif of their home. And yet he, at a young age, say 12 or so, couldn't quite believe it because he had been unloved for so long. He thought, how can I get excited about something changing their life when they've not loved me for 12 years? So he kind of played along with the church game for a while through his teens, but he said he always sort of sought the rebellious crowd at church And at a Christian college, he sought the most rebellious element there as well and went to the Christian college because Dad said he'd pay for it and no other reason. But then Christ pursued him, and he met this Lord who his parents had met. And he came to a point where he was ready to say what these Samaritans said, and in fact, Job said it in the Old Testament, not about Jesus, but his words fit perfectly. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ears, but now my eye sees you. And this young man bowed before Christ. And what a story he told me of going back to his mom and dad and for the first time saying, I love you, mom. I love you, dad. I forgive you for all that lack of love all those years. That's not a made-up story. He's sitting among us. These people saw for themselves that Jesus was the Christ, that he was indeed the Savior of all kinds of people. And I ask you, if we would dare to believe that many people we encounter are more ready to hear some aspect of the gospel and maybe not respond instantly. Uh, The problem with this story is everybody seems to respond immediately, and that doesn't always happen. We know that. But there are more people ready to listen to some aspect of the gospel than you think. But what it needs is somebody to show them genuine interest, respect, caring for them, willingness to sort of peel back the layers of the onion of their life and not reject them, when something ugly comes into view. I want you to notice Jesus is not a manipulative evangelist. He has no sales pitch. He has no closing line. He simply cared. And you can do that. You don't have to go to a 10-week class to learn how to do that. 
You simply have to love people and be authentic with them. The Savior of the world came to all kinds of people. Isaiah 45 had predicted long before the Lord said there, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is the God of whom there is no other, Jesus Christ, launching a global harvest here in a place where they were not his kind of people, where they were not born with a natural affinity toward him. And that harvest continues today, radiating outward in waves from his cross and his resurrection. And I put it to you, he needs harvesters. And it's not an option, you know, for a Christian disciple. It seems to me pretty clear as Jesus spoke to his disciples here, he expected disciples to be harvesters in some way. There's no reason that we should ever be surprised that a person who we think looks like an unlikely soul for Christian conversion, how can you ever call another soul unlikely to become a convert to Christ when he called you? He called you. Do you think you were deserving? Or do you know you were an object of divine grace? We've learned from John 4 that Jesus, the true Savior of the world, had time for one single morally broken nobody. That's the important lesson here. He had time for one morally broken foreign nobody. He has time for you. Perhaps there's a morally broken nobody who feels like an outsider hearing me today. The Savior of the world has time for you, our Father. I pray that you'd renew a sense of the harvest and our participation in it by prayer for those we know, by a boldness that would say to you day by day, Lord, open up some possible opportunity for me to say something. I'm scared to death to ask you, Lord, because I might actually have to do it. But I pray that you might let me tell somebody that you're the most important thing in my life and love that person I'm telling it to. Do your harvest, Lord, with great mercy and grace as Jesus did it long ago. May he get all the praise. Amen.